What do our values have to do with being leaders in the world? Today, we're talking to conductor John Gennaro Devlin, and he's an ardent champion of American music, an innovator of concert design, and a thought leader in the field of classical music. In his third season as music director of the Wheeling Symphony Orchestra, John is only the ninth conductor in its 90-year history to hold the title, and at 36, is one of the nation's youngest music directors to lead a professional symphony orchestra. I hope you enjoy this episode today and remember that something powerful resides within you. I'm here to support you in seeing it and creating it. have to do with leadership. Today for our coaching tip of the week, I want to share a little bit about values and what they mean to me. I think values are the single most important factor in making decisions in the world. And we often don't think of them when we're looking to choose something or create something. We forget that they exist. When someone gets really clear on what their personal values are, everything can bloom and grow from those. Two of my values in the world that I love are leadership and love. They go hand in hand. They support each other. But oftentimes when I'm thinking of what I want to choose or move into for my business or with my clients, the first thing I might ask myself is, what would I choose coming from love? Or what would this look like coming from love? Or sometimes from the leadership value perspective, I say something like, What's the kind of leader I want to be in the world? And what would that person say in this moment? Or what's, a, what's the representation of me as that leader in the world? So values are important in decisions that we're making. If you need some support, Brene Brown has a list of incredible values that you can choose from and an exercise that she actually walks you through there. But there are many different exercises out on the web to get clear on what your values are. So the thing that I would offer is simply try one and see if the values that you choose resonate in the decisions that you're making currently. And if they're not, get clear on what's in the way and re-choose again. Gosh, John, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you for being here. Um, you are one of my favorite people in the world because of your heart and your vision and your leadership in the music world. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here and very humbled by your kind words. <laughs> so um, let's let's start with the story uh, of how we met. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share about it? Yeah, I love this story, and I think you do too. <laughs> uh, when I was eight years old, I lived just outside of New York City, and a New York Ranger on the hockey team there in New York moved into my apartment building, and my life was like a fantasy land for a whole year while he lived in the building because New York Rangers players would stop by as they were carpooling, and the team was really good that year. They hadn't won the Stanley Cup in 40 years, and then 
they won the Stanley Cup that year. So it was the spectacular thing. And I would get to go to the games and I would go to the practices and I would meet everybody. And uh, so Mike was Mike Hartman was the name of the player. And he is somebody that you and I both know. So for no good reason, but like last year, my wife and I were sitting here on the couch and we had run out of conversation topics from when I was nine and older. So we went back to when I was eight because it was COVID and we were talking on the couch for eight hours every night. And she's like, well, tell me something interesting. You had a New York Ranger living in your building. I said, yeah, I should look him up. So I looked him up and the last podcast episode on a podcast he had featured you (laughs) as a guest. And so to hear this amazing athlete who I knew from my childhood talking to a former opera singer who's now a leadership coach those two things met in my brain really powerfully yeah. <laughs> and I reached out to you and then we became friends yeah it's such a great story you know my my side of it that I remember is um you know I I didn't know my my Cartman at all um I mm-hmm. from New Mexico there's no hockey anywhere so it wasn't really a big <laughs> hockey fan growing up myself but I remember that a friend of mine took me to a New York Rangers game about seven years ago mm-hmm. and we I fell in love with hockey so I would always go to the Rangers watch him play. And then when I moved to New Jersey, of course, I had to become a Devils fan. And that broke my friend's heart. She said I was a traitor, which (laughs) I totally get. Um, But Mike reached out to me. I I don't even know how he found me. I think he was listening to one of my podcasts and he said, I'd love to interview Mm. you. And I was so surprised that such like a well-known um, you know, leader in in the hockey arena would would want to interview me, and I was like, okay, I'd love to. And it, I was so nervous on that podcast. I remember because <laughs> I was like, this it's my Cartman, it's my Cartman. And he's interviewing me, and we had such a great time. And then um, he invited me to his Facebook forum to show up one day, and and yeah, that's it was a big group of people, and he was just introducing everybody as a community and he spotlighted you and me as being in in the music world. I just thought, oh, wow, there's a conductor on this call. That's really cool. Uh, Wow. What's the, what's the synergies of that in the world? So um, then I will say if it's okay, one of the benefits of being a conductor is that when you're amidst a group of people or at a party or something, you know, the, one of the first things you always ask is what do you do? I love having the answer that I have because no one is disinterested by that. Yeah. And I think Mike with his good old, you know, heart, I think he immediately saw the connection and was like, you two should talk (laughs) briefly. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we've done a lot of talking. We've done a lot of talking. So you reached out and we connected and man, um, I'm forever changed by the connection. So thank you for the courage that it took to reach out. Well, tell me a little bit about your story. Um, I'd love to know how you became a conductor. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a, odd path to conducting because nobody starts studying music with conducting as an end point. So most of the time what happens is you're studying to be an instrumentalist. In my case, I was a clarinetist. I went to college for that. I um, found conducting when I was in college because being a musician, especially an orchestral performer, is a very isolated profession. Even though most of the time the public sees you on stage with a hundred other people, you sit next to the same person every day of your life. And then 
aside from that, you have to practice your instrument five, six, seven, eight hours a day to be at that top professional level to execute when you're on the stage. And for me, being somebody that's so outgoing and likes the business and leadership aspects of um, just anything that I do, uh, finding the pathway to conducting where you do all of those things on behalf of the orchestra and then get to perform with the rest of the musicians, that felt like the right fit for me. So I pivoted, found this thing that felt like home, and since then, uh, haven't questioned that decision even once. That's amazing. Do you think that you, looking back, what was the most surprising part of ending up here? Mm. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions that even I had about what a conductor does. Because for about four or five hours a day, I sit at a desk and study scores. And that is just, that is essential because when I step onto the podium in front of a group of players, I'm 36. Most of the players right now uh, are older than me, have more experience than me, and I'm responsible for saying, this is how we're going to do things. And so uh, I have to be, I would say, like consummate in the way that I have my preparation and my decisions made before I get to the podium. So that's a given. Then... A lot of people are guest conductors. They go from orchestra to orchestra every week, and the relationship is almost essentially musical only. Um, However, I'm a music director. My orchestra is here in Wheeling, West Virginia. Uh, It's an orchestra that performs about two times a month uh, and does all sorts of different types of concerts for this small community that's just outside of Pittsburgh. And I love it because I'm not only the conductor, but the music director. And that carries with it a whole other host of responsibilities. I'm basically co-CEOs of the organization along with the executive director. So he's responsible for all things administrative. I'm responsible for all things artistic. And then there's a third prong of, let's say, like the legs of a stool, the board president who's responsible for oversight of the organization from a fiduciary standpoint. And actually, we report to the board president, both me and the executive director. So what does the music director do in addition to conduct? I am taking meetings with people that we might collaborate with. I'm going out into the community and speaking to, like, I just got back yesterday from a visit to the state capitol where I met all the politicians that represent our district and talked about funding needs and priorities. I'm going to student groups and talking to them about the importance of orchestra and why you should invest in music education. I am participating in budgeting meetings. I go to every staff meeting, every board meeting, every executive committee meeting and advocate on behalf of my side of the organization. So it's anything you want to make it and the harder you you work and the more things you're willing to get involved with within the organization, I think the better off the organization is. So there's been this move in the industry to or, to orchestras having music directors that care about these things, which I certainly do. And I've loved seeing that expressed here in Wheeling and um, in the organizations with which I've worked in the past. Thank you so much for sharing all the intricacies of it, because I think some people might think that you you get up and it's simply about the music and creating a show. And what I notice is um, from what you shared that you are a leader in multiple ways and that it doesn't work if you don't have all parts of this, this connection with people at different levels. Yes, we interact with so many different constituent groups. I directly manage some people on the staff. Then there are 80 musicians that are in the orchestra, but we are a part-time orchestra. So our musicians are shared with most of them with the Pittsburgh Ballet and Opera. So they're with us about a third of the time and they're um, you know, contract employees. So we 
see them infrequently, but we have to create a culture and we have to manage them. We have to set an expectation about how they come prepared when they arrive here and how we work together as a team. And then I have 34 bosses on the board that I am working with in a collaborative way and trying to explain and translate what the players and myself are trying to produce and how it's valuable for our community because many of them are doctors and lawyers and scientists and politicians and they don't have experience in the performing arts or even in nonprofits at all. Um, and so working with them and doing kind of reverse education where you educate the people that are overseeing you, it's a very del delicate balance. But when you achieve trust, which is of course the biggest and most important thing here when you don't have expertise in the same areas that you're working with other people, mm -hmm. um, that's the thing that I think propels the organization forward and we've been able to do that pretty well here. Ooh, thanks for highlighting a very key point, trust. Because I think uh, all the leaders that I'm speaking to in the world, trust and relationship is key in leading anything. So I love that that's, that's a heart of what you just said, like a, a big piece of it. Yeah. And that brings to mind something I think would be worth highlighting, which is it's a very strange setup here where there are two co-leaders. I don't report to the executive director. The executive director doesn't report to me. We're horizontal on the org chart at the top. How many organizations do we see out in the world that are modeled that way? It's very strange. And there's a reason that you send three astronauts up in the <laughs> spaceship together because yes. three and one are, are numbers that have proven good in leadership situations. Two is very strange because what happens if you disagree, right? right. So, that, so that is the type of thing that I've worked very hard on. I've made some mistakes in my past. I've had some successes in the past, but here, um, the executive director's name is Brian Bronlick, and he and I have developed this idea where we start from a position of yes. He tells me something that he needs. I tell him something that I need. The, the goal is always to reverse engineer a solution. Now, he'll have to tell me some context around why he's making a request if it doesn't align with my artistic priorities. And I, too, will have to do the same for him, especially around the question of money, because, of course, I want to spend the money. Uh, he wants to save yeah. the money. But if we can work together about how can spending money on great art help us raise money from the people that are the grantors, the, the donors, the corporate sponsors that support the organization. That's when working in symbiosis. And I think you, you and I talk about marbles in a bucket, right? Where every time you do something and follow through with it and it happens the way that you design it and you live out the truth that you created with each other and marble goes in the bucket. And the bucket can fall over and, and disappear very quickly. But as long as you keep adding the marbles into it, the more, I think, risks you're willing to take in that kind of bilateral leadership system. Um, and it's a very, very delicate balance, but one that's incredibly rewarding if it goes well. Wow. I want to highlight a couple of the, the skills that I hear you practicing as a leader who partners with somebody at the top. First of all, a great call out in terms of, I don't know many organizations that have to share direct responsibilities like that. And what I hear when you say we start from yes, that that creates a listening of listening to understand as opposed to listening to respond to each other. And also some really clear boundaries around like, you know, uh, this is what I need. This is what you need. And how do we actually meet in the middle in terms of partnership as well? Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that created that partnership and trust in the very beginning was when I came to the organization in the fall of 2019, I had never done this before. But what I saw was an organization that didn't have a set of artistic priorities that were clearly stated. There was nothing on paper and there was nothing in the ether. 
So I said, why don't we sit down with the players, the board, the staff, Brian, the executive director, our community, and say, what are the three artistic values that we are going to stand most behind? And that's a difficult exercise because I love German symphonies and I love French concertos, but you have to pick some things to prioritize. So we prioritize three things, uh, supporting living American composers, innovating the way concerts are presented, and giving our musicians a great voice in the artistic programming of the organization to highlight their individuality. So now, because we've done that, and as a board, staff, and orchestra, we've agreed on those principles, now every time a question comes up about should we do A or B? Or should we spend money on C or D? We can go back to those principles. And oftentimes we see an alignment between a particular pathway. And so that kind of thing can help with your branding in the community and what your audience expects of you and what they can stand behind proudly as something that's a priority for their hometown orchestra. It helps our players understand the mission and the longer term and midterm goals of the organization. And it can help decide things like what board members will you invite to join? Do they align with your priorities or would they rather have an orchestra doing something else? Maybe they're not a great fit. So these types of things really helped us from the beginning. And then the search for the executive director position happened while I was here already. And Brian gave an argument about why he agreed with the priorities we had already established, which is one of the many things that helped contribute to us deciding that he was the right fit for our organization. Amazing. Well, and thanks for sharing the the thought process behind that, because I'm curious about, you mentioned priorities and something I know about you is that you are a leader that's full of integrity and commitment and values. Your personal values are always being supported by the organizational values you've created. So um, I'd like to hear more about, you know, the last the last two years have been really rough, right? In a pandemic, hopefully we're we're emerging from it. And now, you know, a lot of talk about war in the world is happening right this moment. So how do your priorities and your values, how have you seen it shift how you've worked with your orchestra and your organization and all the other people you've mentioned the last two years? So I've lived in New York, Atlanta, Washington, D.C., and Honolulu before I came here to Wheeling. And Wheeling is a place unlike any I've ever lived before. There are 27,000 people in this city And it is in a place where there's one orchestra, not 30, like in Washington, D.C. And the orchestra's been here for over 90 years. It's incredibly important to the city. And so, as is the case with a lot of early career professionals, most of the places I came to work before finding my way to Wheeling, I thought I had a three to five year time frame in terms of what I, how long I would spend at the organization. But here, I would say that's more like 15 years. And by finding a job where I felt like I could look at things in a long-term trajectory, it changed my decision-making philosophy greatly. Because I wasn't, how do we accomplish a goal as quickly as possible so that I see the end of that goal? It's, I feel like I'm a steward in an organization because my only job is to make the orchestra relevant to the people that live here and helpful to the community and make it a joyful place to live, but where we also ask questions of our audience that we think are important culturally and leave it in a beautiful place for the 10th music director who will be after me. And you can guess I am the ninth. So it's also a 50, 50 
political environment. Half the people voted for Trump, half the people voted for Biden. And normally there's an idea that, okay, an artistic organization in a big city is going to be highly liberal. But here I'm looking at it as, okay, some conversations in Wheeling, West Virginia are not where they are in Honolulu or Washington, D.C., So how can we find out where the average person is in terms of understanding and political issues and things they want from their symphony? And then how can I as an artist be authentic and say, here's where I'd like the conversation to go. How do we go there in a way that feels like we're bringing everyone along with us? Because that's not the goal for a lot of arts organizations. A lot of arts organizations are saying we have our core audience, our core donors, and we are supporting a mission that they believe in fully. Here, very few people are going to fully agree with what we say as an organization because there's people on this wide political spectrum that come to every concert. And that has been incredibly interesting to think about how do we nudge things in a way for more acceptance, more equality, more racial justice, more equity in terms of the decisions we make, more diversification of our board, our staff, our orchestra, while understanding where everyone who may not have bought into that conversation so fully yet can be talked to in such a way that it's completely filled with respect. And that is where we're coming from here in a place that is, you know, 96% white and 50-50 Republican Democrat. It's entirely um, new environment for me, but one I'm very interested in seeing how can we make the type of progress we hope for, I think, across the whole world. Yeah. And I, well, I really acknowledge you because I know the community is with you just from our talks that we've had, you know, previously. Um, So they're, they're really growing with you. And the thing that I hear you practicing from uh, coaching and leadership development is you're creating an invented future of where you want to be as an organization or where you want your audience to grow to. And then you're inviting people along for the journey as opposed to what some other organizations do is simply how do we keep people happy right now and fill seats, right? And so um, it's it's amazing to have a leader like you that's disrupting the music world in that way because there's not many people willing to take that chance right now. And I mean, will you share a little bit about what the community response has been to you? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I just need to say, it's not just to me, it's to our whole board, staff and musician group because we're all investing in it together. Am I one of the leaders that's going to talk into microphones a lot? Yes. But um, I couldn't be doing this without the full support and most especially from Brian, because like I said, it's a, it's a two headed leadership team on the side of the staff. So the response at the beginning was a little suspicious because it's like, I'm going to a concert hall to hear music that I've never heard before. Most of the time when we go to hear a concert, there's a little bit of nostalgia attached to it, right? Like this artist had our favorite song from 1997 or 2017, and we're going, hope, waiting for that. And maybe if you're a hardcore fan, you know the whole discography and you hear every song, you know. Um, Same thing with orchestras. And you can imagine we don't have 14 or 19 years of history behind us. We have... 190 or 420 years of history behind us. And all of these pieces that have become, you know, I'm I'm using air quotes. It's a podcast. You can't see them. (laughs) Canon. And so 
for me, though, as an American music director, I think we have a responsibility, first and foremost, to the living American composers to give them a platform, because without that, how is the field going to progress? How will we respond to current events? How will we create a class of people that are creators within our field, not just interpreters? That's vital. And then and then if you now you go back, you know, America did not enter prominence in the classical music world until the early part of the 20th century. But we have a history of new types of music that use orchestra soundtracks for films. I mean, John Williams just turned 90. There's no one better in history who's ever written that. He's the Beethoven of what he does. There's jazz-inspired types of things that happen with orchestras. Gershwin and Bernstein. Uh, Broadway is another huge thing. We just did a Disney concert. Like, Disney does not exist without the orchestra that plays behind the singers. So, for me, instead of viewing American pops music as one thing that I don't want to deal with because I am a serious classical conductor. That doesn't work for me. I embrace both fully. So I think that in a not a patriotic way necessarily, but one that just has pride where we come from, um, that music matters and putting that on a platform by saying that was my number one goal as a music director here, the entire city started to understand, well, let's get on board with this and see how well he and the orchestra can do that. And by being really careful about the music I pick and making sure I fully believe in it, that's the type of thing that builds trust with the audience that says, I don't know what John is going to perform next time. And I don't know the pieces and the composers on the program, but I trust that they're going to create an amazing experience for me. And then maybe we can talk about this in another answer. We find ways to tie those pieces into our community in a way that feels relevant and meaningful. And the audience has come along. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, you just shared that it starts from your values you build trust slowly over time. You've taken some big chances. And through the relationship that you continually tend to, not only with your internal team, but with uh, the community, that this is what's actually growing slowly. I do want to hear more about that trust piece. So we can we can either put that in now. But I, I also have another question in my head that I want to make sure I don't forget, which is um, what does it take for you to show up courageously to do all of this as a leader? Because... It's, it's brave, it's outside the box, it's potentially disruptive, right? So what do you need as a leader to continue to have courage to make these decisions? I think that one of the things that's helped my journey here is being as accessible as possible. I have to protect my time. Like I said, I have to be studying scores and practicing my clarinet and doing my sight singing and piano and ear training because just like... I don't know, an NBA player, you can't just say, well, I'm pretty good. So I'm going to stop practicing my free throws because I can go to a school and make kids feel really great that I visited them today. But then if you can't shoot a free throw the next night, then you're off the team. So it's a balancing act. But in these first few years, especially because of COVID and we were doing different types of performances, I felt a need to establish myself in a community where you can imagine most people that live in Wheeling were born here. A lot of them went away for school and came back, but I am an outsider. So my barber came for the first time ever to a Wheeling Symphony concert last time we performed because I've known him for two years. And then I have a bar that I go to with people that have never been to the symphony. And I joined the local young professionals group. I go to speak at the Rotary and the Chamber of Commerce. And I became friends with the mayor. And just slowly, one by one, I've been able to get to know more and more of the 27,000 people that live here. 
And classical music seems so distant to most people, most especially people in communities like this one that are blue collar, hardworking and have, you know, this is an old coal town, steel town. And that industry crashed. It used to be 175,000 people lived here. Now that now it's one sixth of that. So how can orchestral music, which seems so discreet from everyday life in so many ways, matter to this community and build it back up as we revitalize this downtown? Well, I moved here. I live right in the middle of downtown. I see people on my dog walk every day. The only thing I want to talk about is the orchestra, but I hold back. I ask, what's going on in your life? And I love sports and video games and movies and TV shows <laughs> and politics. And I can talk about, <laughs> yeah, I can talk about all of these things yeah. with you that you would talk about with anyone else. And then at the end, find a way to say, hey, our orchestra, if you love that stuff, is also presenting concerts that you might love. Come check us out. Here's two free tickets. I keep a little pack of uh, vouchers <laughs> in my back pocket. So brilliant. And right, one by one, those people start to show up. And maybe one out of two or one out of three will come regularly after that first time. But you do that work. We only we put, we put need 2,000 people to come to the concerts. You can imagine that if you just slowly add a base of people that feel an allegiance to you and to the organization, you'll start to fill the concert hall. Mm. So it also sounds like that sources you is connection, deep, personal, intimate connection with people gives you more fuel to keep going. It it sure does. And I think also when people see leaders doing that type of grassroots work, then it starts to filter into the 30 board members, into our seven-person staff, into our 80 musicians. And if that work continues to be cumulative and you have all of these people that are invested in the organization doing it, then the people that they ask to also become invested and all we need is a small donation and you to buy tickets to the concerts, you see that success starting to snowball and then you have something when when the community feels invested in the product rather than that they're doing us a favor and their civic duty by attending the concerts. Mm, Beautiful, beautiful. Well, and what's your hope for the impact for the future, not only in, you know, orchestral and classical music, but for your community? When you describe a community that's 50% red and 50% blue politically, you would think, wow, there must be a lot of conflict. In fact, there's very little it feels like a, a Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> where you, know, you don't talk about it. <laughs> you talk about it at the ballot box and then you go back. Um, so for me, I mentioned that long trajectory. It's how do we create relevance in our concerts, not just because we're going to play beautiful pieces, but what are those pieces saying? And I really do think that a lot of orchestras miss explaining to the audience why these pieces were picked, why they're put together, and what impact you hope to have. And a lot of orchestras put on three concerts every weekend. We put on about three a month. So we actually have a value in terms of being able to plan things and put a conversation out there in advance of our concert. Let me give you an example. Our final concert of this year is going to feature three composers that all of whom had their careers greatly affected by politics. One of them is Florence Price, a black 
female composer in this country from the beginning to the mid of the 20th century who almost got no performances of her music because she was a female and the colors of her skin. So we're partnering with a scholar from Washington, D.C. who specializes in her music, telling her story, and she's going to come out several times in the weeks before the concert and do talks with me in the community about her legacy, Florence Price's. The next composer is Richard Wagner, who has no trouble getting performances of his music, but he was just a blatant anti-Semite. So I'm partnering with the rabbi in our city to say, what type of conversation do you need around a composer who's openly anti-Semitic in order to create a context for performing this person's work that is appropriate to the communities whom this person has harmed? And that is something that I think everyone can learn about. And there's a sen- there's a cultural sensitivity aspect built into that conversation that many people are looking to as, as we talk about how are we going to make sure that transgender rights are respected in all of our communities and how do we create um, words in our society that become the ones that are comfortable to use around topics like that, that some t- in some communities, ours included, we're wrestling with that right now. And then the final conversation topic, and this one I can't believe this is happening, is I'm a Shostakovich scholar, and I love his music. He's my favorite composer. Shostakovich was a, a Soviet artist under Stalin, who at times had his music banned, and at other times was sent to the United States to brag about how great the Soviet Union was. And look at what we're experiencing today, right now, with Vladimir Putin. What are Soviet artists that disagree with what Putin is doing right now saying and how safe do they feel? So all of a sudden, this thing that was going to be an interesting thought exercise when we planned it three months ago is now maybe the most important topic artistically in the entire world. And it is a reincarnation of something that happened 50 years ago, almost within the same circumstances. Cold War, artists, autocratic leader, what does the United States do? What do other artists do? So um, this is the type of thing that we're presenting, and we're going to have a festival the whole month thinking about these things before one performance. And we're going to the high school, and all three high schools in this area are coming. They're getting bussed in to hear a conversation like this. We're going to do one for the public. We're going to do one at the library for senior citizens and just create this environment of sharing ideas, having uncomfortable discussions, but in the context of how does it affect art. But I hope it certainly permeates into all the things that we think about as citizens. And John, that's incredible. The amount of work that you are putting into creating conversations creates so much room for education and growth and people to um, have dialogue, which is really what this is all about, right? The messy middle is something I talk a lot about in leadership and you are living and breathing it. So thank you for being one of the leaders in the world that's willing to have these conversations. All right. Last question. If you had a megaphone uh, to, you know, announce something to the world, which you do, you have a big platform <laughs> that you use literally in the concert stage, but your, your personal voice, what would you say to the future? I got the best piece of advice that I ever received from a conductor named Marin Alsop, who was the first female music director of one of the top budget orchestras in this country, Baltimore Symphony. And uh, I lived in Maryland when I was doing my graduate school and I got to work with her. And she said, the people who are happiest and have the most impact are the ones that invest fully where they are right now. You may have ambition to be working somewhere else or doing something different in some period of time into the future. 
but the people, it's funny, that get the opportunities they want in the future are usually the people that aren't angling for their future today. They're doing the things in the place that they are that benefit the people in the city they live in and the people they work around and for the most. And if you have that out of that mindset, it affects every decision you make at either a small or a big level. And I will admit that up until I was at this job, I often thought about how is what I am doing positioning me better to have a career. But then it, a great piece came to me when I finally ended up in a job where I was like, if this was the job I did for the rest of my life, I would be happy and I can make something beautiful happen here. It just changed the way I did every single aspect of, of the job in, in a way that became more human, more vulnerable, more committed, more authentic. And um, it allowed me as a person to start realizing what is the impact that I want to have, not just what is the career I want to have. And that change is the thing that I would shout from a megaphone uh, or on Elena's podcast. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh my gosh, Judd. Thank you so, so much. You are an incredible educator, leader, musician, artist, all of the titles, but um, I'm, I'm most honored and grateful that you are willing to show up every day and practice your values and be seen uh, for who you are in the world. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all your gifts and your ideas. And thank you so much and for everything you do to help me in that journey. Thank you.